This is Perspectives on Justice. We look at the most current and controversial issues in the U.S. justice system. I'm your host, Judge Alexander Williams, Jr., and I invite you to join me in exploring how the scales of justice are balanced, criminally, socially, and ethically. You are listening to Perspectives on Justice. Our show today is on excessive force and police brutality, a topic that leads news headlines almost daily. Just like the film cameras exposed the police violence against civil rights demonstrators in the South during the 60s, cell phone cameras and social media are now capturing real-time police violence and posting it for millions to see immediately. This police brutality, particularly among African Americans, is not new. Excessive force is disproportionately inflicted upon people of color. The disparity in how police use force also reflects racial inequities across the criminal justice system. A recent study of thousands of use of force episodes from police departments across the nation concluded that African Americans are far more likely than whites and other groups to be victims of use of force by the police. Joining me today to discuss his perspective on excessive force uh, by police is our friend Clarence Edwards. Chief Edwards is a former law enforcement and security officer with extensive experience at the bi-county, county, and federal levels of government. During his career, he held the position of police chief of Montgomery County, Maryland, which is the largest jurisdiction in Maryland. Thank you, Chief Edwards, and welcome. Thank you uh, for inviting me, Judge Williams. It's an honor to have been, uh, to be your guest. Terrific. My first question, uh, Chief, is this. Uh, excessive force by police perpetrated against African Americans is not new. Can you talk about the origins of policing in America? Well, the origin of organized police forces uh, came about shortly before the abolition of slavery. Before then, sheriffs uh, county sheriffs were the police in America. Uh, during slavery, slave catchers were hired by the owners of the slaves to capture people. And they could use force, but they couldn't use a deadly force because of the value of the slave. Once slavery was abolished, the slave to the owner had lost value. And when I say owner, I'm talking about all those people who had owned slaves or had been supported by slavery. All right, that's an uh, interesting background that uh, we all should do some research on. Now, Chief, a, a recent uh, analysis uh, a couple years ago, a few years ago, found that racial minorities make up about 37 percent of the general population in the United States, but yet 46% of the armed and unarmed victims, and 62% of unarmed people killed by the police. Can you talk a little about uh, who we have in these police departments, and how does recruitment play a part in the type of individuals that we want to become police officers? Well, I think, first, we have to look at who has been hired to be a police officer. And uh, then you look at the testing instruments to see if they are adequate to detect biases, um, uh, that implicit biases that would prohibit them or should prohibit them from being police officers. The, um, and I've advocated for some years that that instrument, the psychological evaluation, needed to be improved. Uh, thus far, it hasn't occurred. 
Well, let me ask a question about these psychological tests. Um, are these tests for police applicants capable of identifying racial, ethnic, religious, gender, or sexual orientation bias and indicating whether the applicant should be removed from further consideration as an applicant? I would say that the current uh, evaluations are inadequate. And what uh, I think citizens should do is advocate research into enhancing the ability to detect those biases. Because if you have—and the other thing that you have is fear, because the majority of police officers in this country are white. And many of them come from areas that they've had little or no contact with people of color. But yet, the employment opportunities are not that great in the areas that they come from. So these individuals tend to come to the big cities or counties because the benefits package is better, and uh, they find themselves being thrust into a community of people that they know nothing about. And when you, know, when you don't understand people, you fear them. And you're also conditioned by the 6 o'clock news, with every day uh, you see black people who've been arrested for something. And so that's conditioning you to think that everyone is a lawbreaker, and that's not the case. And it doesn't matter, because you can be—it's just not uh, white officers. You have Hispanic officers, Asian officers, and even African-American officers who haven't—who've uh, grown up in areas where they, they too, have had little contact with uh, the people who inhabit or had been living in the, in the big cities. And they're afraid of them. And fear is my belief. Fear is the thing that drives this violence. Well, let me uh, ask this question, Chief uh, Edwards. Uh, do you feel that the uh, departments are selecting their best officers to be field training officers? How, how is that uh, operated? Well, one of the uh, instances recently was the George Floyd incident. You had a man with 17 complaints, uh, a field training officer. And I think the Asian officer, whose name I don't recall, he had a number of complaints. So the question that I had is why put people who have had complaints, even if you didn't sustain them, uh, as field training officers? You want your best people. And your best people are people who can police without uh, you're going to get complaints because people don't like to get tickets, people don't like to get stopped. But when you see a pattern of complaints where force was used or some type of uh, uh, racial uh, language was implied in the handling of someone, I think as a police chief, uh, you have an obligation to closely examine those complaints, and you need to designate someone within the department who is looking at complaints about excessive use of force, about uh, complaints that allege that someone has used uh, some type of racial language where there was no witness there, so you had no cooperation. And in law enforcement, when police officers are accused of something, Unless you have corroboration, it's going to be pretty difficult to uh, place charges, departmental charges, on them, because uh, the, the, the trial board generally will not convict people unless you have some type of corroboration. Okay. It's uh, interesting, Chief. Uh, now, when you were police chief, of course, I, I know you had to be concerned about the training of officers to make sure that they could understand and appreciate the diversity of the American population. Uh, what's your views today about the current training uh, that's going on in police departments across America? Well, one of the things that I'm currently advocating is that before a police officer even starts the formal police training, that 
departments need to dedicate 40 hours of training where you bring in people from the communities, minorities, and they explain why they run from the police. They explain why they have fears of police and have a dialogue where the officers and the community can talk uh, and speak uh, what's on their mind without, uh, say, a recruit suffering a penalty because he, he or she says something that uh, may have been a little uh, insensitive. But you need to get it out in front and hopefully gain a better understanding of the community that you're going to be policing in. Are you uh, satisfied with the uh, recruit and in-service training and whether it adequately discusses candidly things like implicit bias and its negative implications for a department's image with the public? Are you satisfied? I think it's done, but it has to be frequently reinforced. You have roll calls. You have in-service training. Uh, you have uh, when certain incidents occur, uh, the department sh should send somebody back through um, uh, some type of training to make sure that they understand what uh, the department's policies are. And uh, the chief and all officials have to constantly be reinforcing what the policy is. And the policy is to use that force which is necessary, but no force that's unnecessary. Now, uh, Chief, uh, we read around the country of a number of different tactics that police use. Uh, uh, they use a baton, sometimes improperly. They use chemical sprays. They use mace and pepper spray. Uh, a lot of tasings I've read about. Uh, I've even heard and know of the use of police dogs to maul suspects without any real justification. And I even saw one department that employed electric shock devices and choke holes. All of those kind of tactics seem to me are very serious. And the question that I have would be, uh, do police departments discuss uh, a use of force, or do they emphasize it or go over what is appropriate, what's not appropriate? Can you address that? They, they discuss it, and they have training on it. But it has to be uh, the police culture is set by the top, by the top person that's in charge of the force, and he or she has to make sure that every individual that works within that department or agency understands that certain behaviors won't be tolerated. And it angers people. And chiefs who follow that policy, then you'll have uh, labor unions that might uh, tr threaten you with a vote of no confidence. My contention is you—no one wants it. But you can't be inhibited from doing your job, the job that the public expects you to do, because of the threat of a vote of no confidence. Now, when you talk about the labor unions, are you talking about pretty much the police unions? Yes, the police unions. Yeah, and uh, I will certainly uh, mention that when I was the elected state's attorney, uh, a vote of no confidence was issued against me uh, several years ago. I won't say how long, but that took place. Uh, what's your thinking with reference to these uh, uh, vote of no confidence uh, by unions against uh, prosecutors, uh, elected officials, uh, mayors, and that sort of thing? Well, that, uh, the, the police labor union specifically use that as a tactic. And that's something that I think if you, if you send to the position of chief of police or an elected official, you have to know what is right and do the right thing. And if you get a vote of no confidence, then let so be it. That's a good uh, response. I remember uh, my uh, young fellows was watching television, and they said, why, Daddy, do the police don't like you? And so I wish I had had that response <laughs> back then when I was state's attorney. But let's uh, turn to the Breonna Taylor case, uh, Chief. That's been in the news uh, quite a lot. The uh, police and attorney general took months to investigate the circumstances of her death only to charge one officer with this crime called wanting, wanton endangerment. 
Can you talk about how police organizational cultures are negatively impacting on how minorities are being treated and weave in the uh, Taylor case, if you can? Well, looking at that incident from a distance, the first thing that jumped out at me was the warrant application. If you apply to a magistrate or judge for a warrant, the information that you're providing should be timely. That information was not timely. Then if you're going to execute a warrant, you place the site under surveillance because what you're trying to do is to determine if the person who you suspect lives there is still living there or if they're not those times that they're visiting. Because the, the best way to arrest someone is out in the open, not going into a dwelling, because you don't know what's behind that door. But if you have to do it, you should do it properly. And I didn't feel that the warrant application was correct. And my question was, who reviewed it within the police department? You know, uh, a detective just can't go out or shouldn't be able to go out and just go uh, before you even talk to a magistrate or judge, you should run that by your supervisor, and he or she should give you approval to do that. And I don't know whether that occurred or not, but that's the uh, proper procedure to, to do, because um, had that occurred, they would have, and had they placed surveillance, they would have known that the target didn't even li was no, wasn't living there. So what's the purpose of, of hitting a, a, a house if the target's not there. Well, that's uh, interesting, uh, Chief. Uh, there hasn't been much conversation by the media on what you've now told us is a possible uh, application based on stale information. And uh, that uh, obviously would be critical in deciding whether it should have been issued or not. So uh, you put a different perspective on there that's very important. Thank you for that. Uh, in uh, a number of jurisdictions, uh, Chief, uh, there are uh, statutes and bills and guarantees such as the Law Enforcement Officers' Bill of Rights. And uh, can you speak a little about that and whether that particular uh, bill uh, in Maryland and in other places where they have it, does that have a negative impact on police discipline and it prevents police officers from being held accountable. What's your views on the Police Officers' Bill of Rights? Well, the first state to enact a Police Officers' Bill of Rights was Maryland. Maryland is the model that other states use. And I believe it was 1973 when that was enacted. But as a chief, I found it uh, when I, you know, when I start working in Maryland, that you had to, that, that time you had to wait 10 days before you could even question an officer who could have killed someone, shot and killed someone, or choked them, or did whatever. But you've had a death where the internal affairs people couldn't speak to them. And then you have to be careful, because if there's going to be criminal charges, you can't talk to them because you, if, you know, you, you can compel testimony, but then you basically kill the criminal charge. So that's a concern. You know, sometimes citizens are seeing, you know, rightfully, because they don't fully understand the law, well, why is it taking so long? Because you can't compel testimony from an officer if there's a possibility of them being severely disciplined or terminated, uh, because if you do, then if the district attorney decides to place criminal charges, you've, you've killed that case. Well, uh, obviously there are differences and conflicts between the union's views of law enforcement officers' bill of rights and, of course, management. And as you know, Chief, there's a number of proposals that are being introduced all over America to revise and adjust uh, and uh, amend the Law Enforcement Officers' Bill of Rights. Are there one or two uh, areas in that bill that you think uh, are worth looking at to see if there can be some uh, adjustments or revisions? Well, one of the things 
When I attended the FBI National Academy, I focused on labor relations law. And that was uh, very good because I was going to be re assigned to New York City to run the field office for the United States Park Police there. And that was the area that was where everything, you know, if you didn't let a person off on leave, they file a grievance. But I, I say that you have to have training in labor relations for all people, lieutenant and above. Uh, and you also have to have someone, uh, a, a legal advisor, whose specialty is labor relations law that's either, you're either on staff or you can, you can retain them. Because the conditions that existed when the agreement was, was agreed to, uh, you may find that those particular conditions are now hampering your ability to investigate or to discipline an officer who is alleged to have done something wrong. Uh, you have to have that, and you have to have someone monitoring it, and you have to have a labor relations attorney who can give you good advice uh, as a manager or CEO when situations come up that uh, where you want to or feel that the evidence is such that certain charges should be lodged against an officer. Thank you, Chief. There's a couple more areas I want to ask you about. Uh, one of the areas uh, deals with uh, community uh, police uh, and relationships. Uh, I have found across the uh, years that there's a big uh, split and a distrust by uh, citizens who have no uh, confidence. Uh, some of the citizens have no confidence in uh, police officers and uh, their uh, ability to uh, be fair and, and to, to be uh, doing their job properly and so forth. So uh, tell us about the uh, importance of community policing. Well, first I'd like to tell you about an incident that occurred uh, when I had just turned 18 years old. We had been playing basketball at Monroe Elementary School up on Columbia Road in the northwest quadrant of Washington, D.C. We sat down on the steps, and a patrol poli Metropolitan Police patrol wagon went down Columbia Road. It got about 20 feet past us, and he put on brakes. Well, when he put the backup lights on, I was off to the races, and everybody ran except for one guy. And we put a fence between us, and we said, man, you better run because they're going to lock you up. And he said, I haven't done anything. I'm not running. And he stayed. And these two police officers walked up the steps, and they said, so you're one of those smart ones. Well, we're going to give you a charge. And they charged him with disorderly conduct. The young man had done nothing. I went in the Army. And when I came back, he was going into the Army. I'd come from Korea. He went to Korea. Was up, he was a DMZ uh, MP. When the Berlin crisis came, he was recalled because he had been discharged. Um, when he got out, uh, he got a job at uh, the Smithsonian. He forgot to put that arrest on his uh, clearance papers. It was so long ago till the, the, the fine was $5. He was down at the Smithsonian for about 30 days, and they called him to the office. And they had surfaced this charge. And they fired him. And he had, had enrolled at uh, UDC, I think it was Federal City College at the time. And his everything went wrong for him. And the man wound up an alcoholic. And I, when I teach classes w with police officers, I always tell that story. Because I, I, sometimes I think that police officers don't understand the consequences of the abuse of authority that they have. 
and this man's life was ruined by that, I had learned, if in doubt, run. And I've had police officers say, well, why would you run if you hadn't done anything? Well, I had seen a lot of uh, black men be arrested for nothing. And I wasn't going to take that chance. And when I was being investigated by the United States Park Police, one of the sergeants said, how did you grow up in that neighborhood without a criminal record? And I just smiled. I didn't answer. But I, I avoided that by avoiding contact with the police. And I think a lot of people who've had those experiences, who are minorities, that's something that, you know, a horse is afraid of a mountain lion because in, they know what that mountain lion can do. And I think people who've been subjugated to harassment by police, even if it didn't happen to them, if you hear about it in the barbershop, if your uncle is talking about it or your father is talking about it, it puts a fear or apprehension within you that makes you fearful of the police. And uh, that contributes, in my opinion, to some of the reasons why people won't cooperate with, with police even when criminal offenses have occurred. Uh, Chief, do you think we'll ever get back to the day of uh, referring to officers as friendly, officer-friendly? I remember that name was given to officers when I was a uh, little kid, and I won't even tell you how many times I ran from the police, but I was one of those that ran, did a lot of running. <laughs> well, I didn't meet very many officer-friendlies. You know, I heard about Officer Friendly, but being a black man growing up in Northwest D.C., I didn't see too many officers that were friendly. But I'll tell you something in it because I want to dispel a myth that it's always uh, white officers who are abusive. I used to carry groceries at a Safeway that at that time was located on Georgia Avenue between Hobart Place and Columbia Road. One Saturday, I saw two young black men that I didn't know. They weren't familiar to me in that neighborhood. They came in, and they went in this Safeway store. A few minutes later, they came running out with the manager right behind them. I didn't know. I was a kid. I was about 12 years old. I didn't know what had occurred. So the manager clearly couldn't catch him. He came back. He told me, you stay right there. So I did what he said. In a few minutes, a police car with the siren blaring rolled up. And two police officers went into the uh, store, and they came back out with the manager. And they began to question me about a description. I didn't even know what a description was. Meanwhile, a black patrol officer, footman, he comes up. Well, he takes over the interrogation. And then he told me, if you don't give us more information, uh, I don't want to see you up at the store anymore. Well, my parents didn't have any money to give me. Carrying groceries and um, delivering newspapers was a way that I had money for myself. So I've stayed away for about three weeks. And then uh, I said, well, I, I'm going to go back up here because I don't think he's working. Well, I made a mistake because he grabbed me and uh, threatened to uh, beat me with his stick. And uh, some older black women who knew me intervened, and I was able to get out of that. But conversely, I had a, a, it was a white police officer they called Cowboy, who was at old number 13 precinct. Somebody ran into me one day and knocked my cap off, and I was running to catch my cap. The next thing I know, he had grabbed me and the person had cursed at him. It wasn't not me. And so I explained to him that I had just gotten off the streetcar, and I had a transfer, and that man let me go, where a black guy, who was a cop, wanted to beat me with his stick. So as Peter Green used to say, every black man is not your friend, and every white man is not your enemy. Understood. Understood. Thank you, uh, Chief. Uh, I have one more question that you can uh, answer as we get ready to close. Uh, and of course, uh, one of the things I try to do on Perspective on Justice is to help people create change in the area of justice. So 
Uh, can you, in uh, your parting remarks, give any uh, suggestions as to what people can do to step forward and get uh, a better justice system? Do you have any thoughts? Well, I think accountability. You have to hold your elected officials accountable. Just firing a police chief doesn't change anything. You have to tell those people that you cast a vote for that I expect you to stop the abuse of uh, citizens who happen to be people of color. Okay, thank you, Chief Edwards. Uh, this has been very helpful, uh, very interesting. I appreciate you really responding to Perspectives on Justice for us. Thank you. Thank you. Today, the stories of those who have fallen victim to police brutality are being raised in conversations around the country in ways they haven't been in the past. These conversations have given rise to pervasive myths about the reality of these instances. We would like to dispel a few of these myths for you right now. Myths number one, police brutality and excessive force are used in a small number of police interactions. Well, the real facts would be this. According to multiple studies related to misconduct and complaints made against the police, excessive force is one of the most common complaints against officers. The Citizens Police Data Project found that for the city of Chicago alone, there have been 56,523 complaints about police use of force between the years of 1998 and 2020. That's more than 1,700 a year. Myth number two, all individuals are equally likely to be subjected to police brutality and excessive force. Well, the real fact would be this. Numerous studies have been conducted in order to identify if disparities exist between the rates of police violence against people of different races. Though specific rates of disparity vary depending on the source for the study data, it has been widely found that black people are more likely to be killed by the police than similarly situated white people. According to a new Harvard study, black men are more than 3.23 times more likely to be killed by the police than white men. And then finally, myth number three. Police brutality and excessive force are inherently byproducts of any police force. Well, here's the fact. The United States stands out from other developed nations in its ex instance of police brutality and excessive force. According to the Washington Post, since 2015, there have been nearly 1,000 people killed by the police. And according to the organization Mapping Police Violence, 826 individuals have already lost their lives at the hands of police in year 2020. Those are the facts. Joining me today is the distinguished state's attorney for Prince George's County, and that is Aisha Braveboy, uh, who was elected as the chief law enforcement prosecutor for Prince George's County. State's attorney Braveboy also served as a delegate in the Maryland General Assembly. I think she was elected uh, back in 2006 as a delegate of the 25th Legislative District. And she sponsored a number of great bills uh, addressing the plight of historically black colleges and universities, reducing mass incarceration, and she also proposed a number of opportunities for minority businesses. I also believe that State's Attorney Brave Boy was also the chair of the Legislative Black Caucus in the General Assembly. Uh, welcome, Madam State's Attorney. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Uh, we just spoke with former Chief of Police uh, for Montgomery County, and we heard his views on excessive force and police violence. Police brutality, as you know, uh, Madam State's Attorney, is not new. It has been occurring for decades. 
prosecutors are often criticized for turning a blind eye to officer misconduct as part of a culture that rewards tough-on-crime strategies and thereby enrages the public. Uh, when prosecutors bring charges against police officers for brutality and misconduct, they then get uh, the wrath of the patrol or the police and others who support police officers. So you're kind of caught uh, in between with reference to these excessive force cases. How do you walk the line between police violence and police doing their jobs to affect an arrest? That's the, uh, the, the general issue that comes up in these cases. So let's start off with a question, uh, State's Attorney. Uh, from your perspective, uh, when can or should police officers use deadly force? Well, you know, Graham versus Connor, which is a Supreme Court case, really set um, forth uh, prevailing law when it comes to the use of force, in particular deadly force. And essentially, uh, what that court, what that uh, case states, is that um, officers can use force that is objectively reasonable. So they can use deadly force when it's objectively reasonable to do so. And uh, so that, you know, courts will have to look at, and, and prosecutors will have to look at the circumstances that the officer face. Uh, whether or not uh, less lethal force uh, could have been used or should have been used. Um, but if an officer is facing serious bodily harm or death, either the officer is, is the potential victim or someone else is, then the officer uh, can use uh, deadly force. Now, uh, State Sergeant Brave Boy, uh, I certainly want to give you uh here. Uh, you are one of the uh, progressive uh, prosecutors uh, recently elected around the uh, country, and from all indications, what I've heard, uh, they've given you raise in terms of you being fair to uh, all sides. And as state's attorney, uh, you obviously would have to review excessive force cases and uh, from time to time uh, present them to a grand jury. Uh, can you uh, talk about the challenges that prosecutors have when they're reviewing and then deciding whether to present a case before a grand jury? Sure. Well, we really, any case that we indict involving a police officer, we present to a grand jury. Um, so there are cases uh, that the grand juries decline to in indict, and there are cases um, where the grand jury does indict. Uh, what we ask the, the grand jury to do is apply the facts to the law. So we explain the law, and in this case, in cases where um, we're dealing with excessive force, uh, the law is the case law uh, set forth in Graham versus Connor. So we talk about the reasonableness standard, uh, we all the objective reasonableness standard. Uh, we also explain the use of force continuum. So there are other less lethal uh, force that officers have the ability to use. We talk about the training that those officers have. And uh, again, we apply or we provide the facts of the case uh, before us uh, to the jury, and we ask them to apply the law and render a decision whether or not to indict. All right. Uh, now, uh, State's Attorney, uh just for clarity, a number of our listeners uh, may not be uh, clear on the difference between an indictment sure. and a conviction. Sure. Can you explain the difference between indicting a police officer and convicting a police officer? Absolutely. Well, the indictment process really is the formal or really official way that the state attorney's office uh, charges in our um, circuit court cases. So it involves uh, the citizens in Prince George's County who have uh, been asked to serve on what's called a grand jury. We have about 24 uh, individuals who are selected from our community to serve on a grand jury. They sit for about three months and they come in um, twice a week uh, to hear cases uh, that we believe rise to the level of felony cases. And in those cases, uh, they are presented with the facts and they make decisions on uh, uh, whether or not to charge. Again, those are 
just whether or not we are going to charge for um, these felonies. Um, and then uh, every defendant is entitled to a fair trial um, with uh, what's called, considered a petite jury or a regular jury, you know, the 12-member jury. Um, so, so before an individual is tried at a jury trial or if they elect to a bench trial, uh, that person is indicted, so they're formally charged. That doesn't mean that they are convicted. Uh, they are just uh, formally charged with the, uh, with the felony offense, and then they will stand uh, at a trial uh, of uh, before a jury of their peers or judge if they elect to do so and they are then um, then there's a trial and then there's a determination of guilt or innocence and at that point if they are uh, found to be guilty of one or more of those felonies uh, or it could be a misdemeanor that they're found guilty of uh, then they will be sentenced at at sentencing, that the the, uh, the conviction is really completed at the sentencing phase, um, but that's really the process. So just because someone is indicted doesn't mean that they are convicted. Sure, and of course they could be uh, found not guilty. They could be found out and, not guilty. Uh, and that's the next question: Is it uh, difficult to convict uh, police officers? You know, I, th I think that by and large it is. Um, we've had, so far under my um, tenure, we've had two trials uh, involving officers. Um, one was a, a case of excessive use of force, which uh, we did uh, win a conviction in that case. We also had another case involving an officer that was a sexual assault case that took place off-duty. Uh, and then we also secured a conviction in that case. And in that case, the officer is going to be sentenced later this year. Um, and then we have, um, we've, we've in total indicted uh, 13 different officers, four for excessive use of force, and so we have three trials that are going to be upcoming. That's uh, quite an impressive uh, record of being uh, fair and uh, an issue that uh, is of concern. Uh, let me ask you this question. Uh, do attorneys for the police officers who are indicted or charged, do they typically request a, a jury trial or bench trial with a judge? Well, my experience uh, so far is that we've had one of each. <laughs> we've had um, one officer that elected a bench trial, the other elected a jury trial. But I think by and large, what I hear from my colleagues around the country is that officers typically elect to have a bench trial. And why do they do that? Why do you think they do that? Well, I think uh, that they may believe that they'll get a fair hearing before a judge because I think there is, um, you know, uh, concern around um, communities that may uh, have negative opinions about police officers. So if there's a police officer who's on trial, they may think that they're not going to get a fair trial. So it is the uh, it's up to them to determine, you know, what type of trial they want, and oftentimes they do choose bench trials. Sure. Uh, before we leave uh, the indictment and the conviction process, I just want to ask your thoughts on this. Some jurisdictions uh, have the uh, authority of prosecutors to file uh, what they call a criminal information, yes. or they can charge uh, police officers without going to the grand jury. I don't know whether you have any thoughts on that, and, and the reason I bring that up, because some people are saying in the Breonna Taylor case that the prosecutor used the grand jury as a shield not to doing what uh, the office should have done. So you have any thoughts about that? You know, that is actually a question that I've really pondered, to be honest with you, because, you know, there are some cases that I feel very strongly about, um, and my hope is that the grand jury will agree. If, if they fairly apply the facts to the law, they will agree. Uh, but... Um, you know, so far we have su have had success with our grand jury. So, so far that process seems to be working here in Prince George's County. If there comes a time where I believe that that process is not effective, then I believe that, you know, we would make some changes to that. But but I think that that is, that is a fair question. And honestly, it is something that I've really considered because I remembered— um, and I can't remember, I think it was the uh, a senator, 
Uh, she was running for president. I can't <laughs> can't think of her written name right now, but Senator, she's a former prosecutor, and she got criticized about a case uh, that involved excessive use of force and an officer who, um, you know, killed a suspect or a civilian. And the grand jury in that case did not indict the officer. Now, I believe that the grand jury uh, convened after she left office. So the, the criticism was before she left office, she could have indicted the case because it occurred um, under her watch. And, um, and, and she said, you know what, I think, if, looking back on it, I should have, you know, I should have indicted that case. Um, and maybe I wouldn't have used the grand jury or wouldn't have, have used that process. Um, Again, every jurisdiction is different. So far, those cases that we brought before the grand jury where we believed very strongly that there should be an indictment, there was an indictment. So right now, I think uh, our citizens here in Prince George's County are fairly looking at these cases and taking the courageous steps to indict when it's appropriate. So right now, that's working. But if ever I believe it's not going to work and it's not producing justice, then I'd make a, a different decision. Well, that's... Uh Terrific. Uh, and I now see why so many have uh, indicated that you're one of the most progressive prosecutors <laughs> in the country. I understand that. <laughs> Let me ask you this. Uh, police have been known to influence prosecutorial behavior with a method called shading, the practice of police officers consciously framing information in their reports or giving testimony and inaccuracies to make their case more convincing. How much due diligence, diligence is exercised by your prosecutors to make sure that police are not using this tactic? Well, we, we do a lot of due diligence. We really uh, probe our officers. We don't just believe something just because we read it. Uh, we come in, we screen those cases. Um, and oftentimes we find that the what the officer wrote is not consistent with what happened. And so what we are seeking uh, in the prosecutor's office is the truth. Uh, we're not seeking to make anyone look good or look bad. We're just seeking the truth. And so um, we do have some concerns uh, at times. And if we have concerns, we have to exercise, you know, our discretion uh, either not to move forward with a case or certain charges uh, that the officer uh, has has written in the statement of charges because we don't believe that the facts support those charges. So I give my officers a lot of dis uh, my excuse me my prosecutors a lot of discretion. I tell them to exercise that discretion well, and and they they do. I think one of the things that will help is uh, our county executive has uh, put in her budget, um, you know, money to fund uh, body cameras, and so I think the body camera, um, the information that we'll glean from the body cameras will really help aid in our investigation um, and will uh, ensure that we're making appropriate charging decisions. So um, I think all of us have to work together to ensure that level of transparency and scrutiny um, that, that every single case deserves. Great. Terrific. Uh, State's Attorney, I, uh, of course, uh, you know it. Uh, I used to be the elected uh, State's Attorney for this county. Uh, uh, and I was the first African-American, and I, and I can tell you now the most difficult cases that I had to prosecute were police brutality cases because of the uh, support uh, by the community as well as the lack of support by the community in a particular case. And so I'd ask you the question in all of the national events that's taking place around the country regarding police violence. Are you under more pressure by the community now to really scrutinize allegations of excessive force? What's, what's your thoughts on that? Well, you know, when I ran for office, I said that I was going to create a public integrity unit uh, that would really focus in on cases of public corruption generally and also police use of force. So I knew that this was part of the job uh, when I took it. And so um, I don't really feel any additional pressure. Uh, what I feel is the, the need 
uh, for transparency. And so uh, when we declined to indict a case uh, like we did um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I took uh, steps to uh, provide the public with as much information as we had. Um, I had our use of force expert come and talk about uh, his findings in the case, uh, as well as providing video uh, and the, the expert's report to the public. Um, so I think it's just really important that we be as transparent with the public as possible. They want information. They know that not every case is going to be indicted, um, but often the community wants to know why. Why was the decision made? Why didn't the grand jury find uh, that the officer uh, or officers uh, should be indicted in a particular case? And I think by providing information to the public that they that they deserve and, and should have access to, uh, I think a lot of those questions get answered, and so that level of trust remains intact. Thank you. Uh, the other uh, issue uh, deals with the uh, community, and uh, I know that you've been seen quite a lot in the community. You've put on a number of forums, and you are speaking everywhere. In fact, you've uh, uh, greatly uh, decided to come onto this show and, and give your thoughts. Uh, what is your office doing to let the community know you'll stand on excessive force and police violence? Well, uh, again, well, let me just say, Anytime a fellow Howard Bison invites me on to a show, I'm going to come. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Love it. Love it. Uh, but we, we hold monthly community in the courthouse events where we talk about cases, including our um, police-involved cases. Um, we've had our public integrity units speak at um, our community in the courthouse as well. So uh, our community knows uh, what my stance is. They know that um, we have a specialized unit in our office that is really walled off from other prosecutions because I think that's one of the things that, you know, uh, prosecutors get criticized about. It's like, well, you're, you're trying cases brought brought by officers, but you're also prosecuting them. How could you fairly do that? And one of the best practices is to have a public integrity unit where those prosecutors are solely prosecuting use of force cases or public corruption cases. And that's what um, I did when I came into office. So we have that. We also make our indictments public. So anytime we indict an officer, I do so very publicly because, again, the public needs to know uh, that we're doing our jobs, that everyone is being held accountable, that there's only one set of laws, and it applies to everyone, both civilian and sworn. Um, so I think I've done a, as best I could to, to get that message out to the community, and certainly, um, you know, our office has, has, has taken on this challenge and has, I think, performed well. And, and let me uh, ask you about your relationship with the uh, police officers and mm -hmm. the union and so forth, as most people in this area would certainly recognize that you're kind of in between. Uh, you have to use the officers as your witnesses uh, often to, to make cases. And at the same time, there's a number of bad apples in the bunch that mm -hmm. have to be dealt with. So what, what is your perception of uh, how they look at you and your office as uh, uh, prosecutors? Well, I think what they know is that I'm going to be fair and courageous. And when it comes to cases involving civ civilians, we prosecute those uh, cases zealously. And when there uh, come, when it comes to cases involving officers, we prosecute those cases zealously. I think what I have to be is neutral and fair, and everyone knows that. Um, I'm very transparent with everybody. And um, so I don't really feel a whole lot of pressure, to be honest with you. I know that there's, you know, uh, the belief that the prosecutor must feel all this pressure because, you know, you have to deal with officers, uh, you know, when you're, when you're dealing with cases that they bring to you. Now you're criticizing their actions and holding them accountable. But that's just the job of the prosecutor. And that's what I knew coming in. So I don't really feel pressure in any way. Um, I know that sometimes they're not happy with the decisions we make. But guess what? I'm not always happy with the decisions they make. And But we know that we have to work together to protect and serve our community, and that's what we're doing. Now, you have uh, one of the largest prosecutor offices in uh, Maryland. Uh, I think you're the second largest, I believe. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, tell us about your office uh, in terms of uh, diversity and uh, inclusion and equity. Yeah, we have a very diverse office. We have over 100 uh, prosecutors and about 100 uh, support staff members, and we are very diverse. Um, we do reflect uh, the diversity here in Prince George's County. Every We, we, we uh, cover several different languages, uh, ethnic uh, ethnicities, obviously genders. We have a, a lot of women leaders in our office. We have male leaders too. Um, and um, we are, we're, we're looking, of course, always to grow, um, grow our numbers and, and grow in our diversity. But we've done a really good job of, of reflecting our community. All right. Just a couple more questions. Uh, oh, one of the goals of the Perspective on Justice uh, is to help create change in the area of justice. Uh, in the pursuit of that goal, I try to ask each of my guests uh, with us uh, to share one small step for justice that we can give to our citizens, our listeners, to help us in the area of justice. And so, uh, State Attorney Brave Boy, what small step for justice uh, would you recommend uh, to the citizens, to the listeners, and uh, others interested in uh, reform of criminal justice? Yeah, I think that our residents and our citizens have to continue to, man, to demand transparency uh, when it comes to officers and their actions, because uh, bad officers make it really difficult for the good officers, you know? Um, people, I think, want to trust law enforcement, but law enforcement can't uh, operate in a veil of secrecy, uh, because when that happens and issues uh, come up, the community is on, a, on one side and the department's on another side. And that's the worst possible position for law enforcement, because we must operate with the support of the community. So I think being very transparent about the bad apples, those who have issues in the department, ensuring that those individuals are flagged early and that they are appropriately dealt with. Either they're uh, removed from the, from the department or they're placed in positions where they're not interfacing with the community to cause problems for the community. Um, so I think definitely uh, the, the community continuing to demand uh, transparency when it comes to off officers uh, and their records, I think, is important. And uh, I know you're still in your first term as uh, the state's attorney, and you've been there, what, a couple years now? Almost two years. Almost two years. <laughs> uh, how do you like the job, or how are you finding it? I love this job. Um, as you probably know, um, having been in this job, it's probably the best job that you can 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 have, uh, and I'm grateful to the people of Prince George's County for electing me. I mean, I have the ability to really impact someone's life every single day. You know, earlier today, actually, uh, I got an email uh, uh, from a defense counsel for an inmate who was a juvenile lifer, uh, who we supported uh, his release. And uh, the parole commission was waiting on word from the governor to see whether or not the governor was going to oppose his release. But since our office supported the release, uh, the governor's uh, governor did not take a position. And as a result, that individual is going to be released very shortly. And um, I got a very nice email uh, from uh, the defense counsel um, at, at, indicating uh, that the young man, uh, well, now I guess he's a little older man, <laughs> uh, who will be released, wants to work with our office uh, to provide more opportunities for others who are in his position. So, again, I'm very grateful because oftentimes we're, we're dealing with people who we, we are convicting and we're asking for sentences or appropriate sentences depending on the uh, what they were convicted for. But when we're also able to provide second chances for people, that makes me feel really good, too. So, you know, it's just it's just a great job. It's a difficult job. I uh, some, Sometimes I have sleepless nights, <laughs> um, but I couldn't imagine being anywhere else at this time in my life. Well, we have been speaking with the distinguished state's attorney for Prince George's County, Aisha Braveboy. Thank you so much. Uh, your comments have been wonderful and helpful. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this particular session of Perspectives on Justice. 
You have heard uh, my two guests, uh, Chief Edwards and State's Attorney Brave Boy. And clearly it is evident that the issue of excessive force and brutality is a very, very serious issue. It takes a lot of people to come together and address the culture that is there. Police uh, Chief Edwards certainly stressed accountability, which is the key to eradicating this problem. And you heard State's Attorney Brave Boy talk about uh, integrity and the need for community uh, relationships and also the need for transparency. Transparency. We believe that uh, these issues are very, very important, and we want to make sure that our listeners stay abreast of this. So let's all keep our eyes on the prize and keep a lookout for any proposals and other policies being considered to reform this aspect of the criminal justice system. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Perspectives on Justice. If you'd like to keep up to date with new episodes, be sure to go to wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe. I'm your host, Judge Alexander Williams, Jr. Until next time.